By now you have Matthew 9 open, and you know these last two Sundays of the Lenten season, we've been reflecting on the deeper meaning and significance of Jesus' identity. And specifically, we've been looking at trust, the significance of trust and faith when it comes to Jesus Christ. We've considered what placing one's trust in Jesus looks like in everyday life. And we've realized, I hope, that our faith in Jesus is not blind, but rather emerges the more we know who Jesus is, the more we rely on him by making him the focus or the object of our convictions and our devotions. Today, as we come to the ninth chapter of Matthew's gospel, we're going to discover that the level of trust that we have in Jesus, the amount of faith we put in him, is contingent upon how much authority we are willing to give him over our lives and our world. Here from Matthew chapter 9, starting with verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought him to a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of untrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At Jesus' announcement, at his teaching at his manifestations of the reality of the kingdom of God, as it continues through the crowds, as we continue to read about it in Matthew, what we begin to see is more and more controversy is arising. On the one hand, as you saw through this, just one excerpt of all that Jesus is doing, there are lots of people 
who are willing to tear through their roofs. If you know the fuller version of the story with the man with the mat, his friends are willing to tear through roofs. There are others who are willing to fight through the masses or even leave their jobs without reservation in order to submit their lives to Jesus. But on the other hand, as we begin to see here, there is a growing number of people who are calling his authority into question, even challenging the basis of his authority. Authority is a tricky thing. If we're honest, most of us tend to dislike authority being exercised in our lives. One of the continuing legacies, for good or ill, of our Western culture is our preference for, nay, our pride even in our rugged Western individualism. The greatest authority that many of us recognize in our lives is me, myself, and I. And this is increasingly true even as the landscape of our culture changes, even in what's called a postmodern world. Some of us, in fact, even invoke the name of God in such matters, saying something along the lines of, it is my God-given right to define and pursue what I believe is right and true for me. We rebel when we think that authority has been imposed or presumed upon us. Given this, given this is our default tendency, when we give someone authority over our lives, this represents a tremendous demonstration of trust and respect. Beloved, the question for us this morning is this. How much authority, how much authority will we recognize when it comes to Jesus Christ? How much authority will we recognize when it comes to Jesus Christ? Because right from the get-go in Matthew chapter 9, if we recognize Jesus' authority to forgive sins, that's the first controversy. If we recognize Jesus' authority to forgive sins, it challenges our definition of what forgiveness is. Can we just say this? Is this am I going to get in trouble for this? Have you, ever, you ever read this story before? I mean, you, we teach this in Sunday school, and it, doesn't it strike anyone as strange that Jesus doesn't answer the question the right way? I mean, you know the fuller version of this story. Some guys bring their friend who's not well. They tear through a roof. They go through all this work. They get down there. They're looking for their friend to get healed. And shouldn't Jesus have responded, your illness is healed? I mean, do you ever stop for a second and think when he goes, son, don't worry, your sins are forgiven, that they go, what? I mean, that's not what, that's awesome, that's not what we came, we were looking for something a little more. Jesus doesn't answer, address the need, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And, and this is an interesting passage on another level because it redefines forgiveness for us, and, and for some of us we get the wrong definition because this is a, the kind of passage where we've struggled with, well, okay, if Jesus invokes forgiveness when this guy can't walk, he's sick, then what's the relationship between sickness and sin? And, and we've gotten some theology that says that sickness is a result of your sinfulness, and in fact, if you're familiar with other encounters that Jesus has, this was actually a, the common understanding in Jesus' day, too, that sickness was a, a manifestation of a curse or a penalty from God because of your sinfulness. But what's really important that we understand in the total of the Gospels to help us understand this passage is that sickness is not a result of one's sinfulness. 
In John chapter 9, probably the best passage we can go to, but there are others. You know, Jesus is with his disciples, and as they're walking, they see a man who was born blind, John tells us. And the disciples say, oh, Jesus, I mean, just, just conversationally, oh, whose sin is that man blind for? Was it his own sin or was it his parents' sin? That was the common understanding of the day. If something wasn't right with you physically, you obviously did something wrong to God, or your parents did. There's something not right in your family. And Jesus doesn't go, oh, yeah, by the way, it was his uncle, really terrible guy, Messed up the family. No, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, neither. Neither. He, 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 and, that, and that passage in John and elsewhere breaks this idea that sick, being sick is somehow um, a result of one's sin. He changes the definition. And here, in a way that we, we can also see, he changes the definition. Sickness is not the result of one's sinfulness. So one is not sick because of their sin or their parents' sin. But, and this is, this is important... Sickness, diseases, are manifestations of a fallen world, a broken creation. They are reflections of the problem of sin. So it's not a one-to-one -one situation. Oh, well, he's sick because he did something wrong. But sick, sickness, disease is a result of the problem of sin. And so it's symptomatic, if you will, of a larger problem. And that's why Jesus goes beyond what these friends are looking for because what he's addressing is our need for a deeper healing. Recognizing Jesus' authority to forgive sins changes our understanding of what forgiveness is. It makes us understand that this is about all creation, not just the individual. All creation longs for restoration, Paul writes. The ultimate barrier between us and God is not disease or sickness. It is our sin. Now, we can all nod our heads and say that we know this, but you know, you see a little bit of evidence that we're still kind of trapped in this mindset. Do you, if you were to just a random sampling, prayer requests that are go out in a church, maybe in our bulletins, do you notice that in the Christian community, our predominant prayers are for physical healing? When's the last time you heard someone actually pray for forgiveness for somebody else? We... We pray for physical healing. That's the thing, man. I mean, and, and for out in the world, you know, that's like the one we jump on. If someone's not well physical, I'm going to pray for you. But when's the last time you offered to pray for forgiveness for someone? Ah. It kind of gets to the point. The bigger issue that Jesus is drawing out, the big, greatest, the ultimate barrier between us and God is not sickness and disease, though these are horrible things that we deal with, but they're, they're symptoms of a larger problem. So, before we go on, why the healing then? Why doesn't Jesus just deal with the sin? Well, the healing takes place here. Jesus tells us this. Because forgiveness is easier to say and harder to prove, right? I mean, I could say I forgive you, but that's hard to prove because forgiveness is predominantly relational. It doesn't carry with it identifiable, visible proof. Healing, on the other hand, is easily verifi verifiable. And so... In invoking this idea of forgiveness, Jesus wants to avoid sensationalism. Oh, yeah, what does he know? And say, okay, so you can know that I have the authority to forgive sins. And then he uses the healing to demonstrate that authority. When we recognize Jesus' authority to forgive sin, it changes our definition of what forgiveness is, and it changes, it challenges our typical understanding of how forgiveness works. Our typical understanding of forgiveness is that forgiveness is personal and private, right? Forgiveness is personal and private. The idea of forgiveness is that I pardon someone, I release the burden from them for someone who's injured, who's wronged, or who's hurt me. 
or I am forgiven by someone who I have injured, hurt, or wronged. Our understanding of forgiveness is very personal and private. Fundamentally, it's my choice as an individual. But appreciate what's happening here. Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is changing the definition because he's changing it to that, pardon, that forgiveness is pardoning or releasing the burden of someone who's injured, who's wronged, or hurt others. You can imagine if the people whose sins were being forgiven, who's, who had been sinned against, were there with the man who Jesus forgave, they might have said, well, who the heck do you think you are? What do you know about it? I haven't forgiven him yet. What do you mean you forgive him? Do you know what he did to me? Do you know what he did to my family? The presumption here is what the religious leaders take issue with. And that's why they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. How do you know? How do you know, Jesus? How do you know, let alone know, let alone judge another standing with God? I mean, for you and I, we understand that we have the ability to forgive uh, each other. But if someone were to come in and to say, I forgive you, many of us would go, what do you know about it? How can you do that? And the Pharisees are saying the same thing. They're saying, look, to forgive those who have hurt others is only something God can do. Now, again, so you can get, so we can really enter into the controversy here. We don't have a problem with this. We see the Pharisees, and again, we can kind of judge them a little bit. You know, we don't have an issue with this because Jesus is, Jesus is God. Of course, Pastor Chris, he has the authority to forgive everybody. We have no issue with that, with what the Pharisees do. But let me turn it around on you. We may not have issue with the fact that Jesus has the authority to forgive everybody. But tell me. Are we willing to accept that everyone is forgiven? Are we willing to accept that everyone is forgiven? Whether they want to be forgiven or whether we want them to be forgiven. If we acknowledge Jesus' authority to forgive sins, are we willing to accept the fact that everyone is forgiven? See, recognizing Jesus' authority about forgiveness of sins changes our understanding of how forgiveness works. Notice, notice, just to, to help you go where I'm going here, notice that the requirements that we typically put on forgiveness, and I'm talking in the Christian community, notice the requirements that we typically put on there. If I were to say to you, what has to happen for forgiveness to take place, the things that you would say are not here. Notice what's missing here. Forgiveness is extended by Jesus without any idea that this man has had the virtue of keeping the law. Without any idea that this man's even promised to keep the law. Without any mention of repentance. Okay, if I'm going to forgive you, I need to know you're sorry. And I need to know you're not going to do it again. Uh, not here. This is not so much an issue for us, but just so you can appreciate how uncomfortable this is for the people who are there, is it's also the fact that Jesus says your sins are forgiven now. The understanding back in the day was your sins are dealt with later when you stand in heaven before God. And Jesus says your sins are forgiven now on earth. Is he crazy? That doesn't happen until later. And for many of us, we may not struggle with this, but that's the same idea. Well, you'll, de you'll be dealt with later. No, you're forgiven now. And here's another one to blow your mind, and I'll 
help you out real quick. We like to say in the church that you're forgiven if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. Hmm. How did this guy get forgiven then? Jesus didn't go to the cross yet. I mean, that's the big thing. Well, I can tell you, if we were to evangelize someone else, you're forgiven if you accept that Jesus died on the cross for you. What happened here? Okay, so if right now if you're panicking, the, it's just a re-understanding of the cross. Jesus forgives people before he dies on the cross. It's very important to understand that, that forgiveness takes place before the cross. The significance of the cross is that the cross is the ultimate payment, the final proof of the reality of our forgiveness. But be really, really careful when we tie this idea of you have to believe that Jesus died on the cross. Yes, amen to that, but Jesus is forgiving people before he goes to the cross. The cross is the ultimate voucher, if you will, the final assurance that, yes, that forgiveness has taken place. Beloved, what all this says is that we have all these requirements, these things that we say that have to happen with forgiveness, and when we do these things, what we're violating is one of our primary tenets as Christians, as Protestants. We say that forgiveness, salvation is by grace alone. And yet, we got all kinds of things we want to add on top of that. This passage shows you, yet again, that forgiveness, salvation, is truly by grace alone. And what it does is it helps to take that word that we love, grace, and make us yet again appreciate how controversial, how provocative, how scandalous it is. No repentance? No promise to keep the law? Acknowledging Jesus' authority to forgive sins means that we have to be willing to acknowledge that everyone is forgiven. Because, beloved, what this points out is everyone is forgiven, not by us first, but by God in Christ. Now, not everyone receives it, but everyone is forgiven. That's the significance of the cross. That's our evangelism, that God so loved the world that he has forgiven everyone. But not everyone receives that forgiveness, but everyone has been forgiven by God. Are we willing to accept those terms of Jesus' authority? Because we do not receive the forgiveness of God, and here's the bite, we do not receive the forgiveness of God unless we give Jesus the authority to forgive everyone. That's the sting of this passage. When we accept the forgiveness of Jesus in our own life, that moment, whenever it came for you, we said, Lord, I need you. Jesus, I embrace you in my life. I need you. I need you to forgive my sins. The moment that you said that, the moment that I said that, was the moment that we weren't just embracing the fact that Jesus forgives me. We were embracing Jesus' authority. We were submitting to that authority to forgive everyone. His desire, his claim to forgive everyone. If we don't accept that Jesus forgives everyone, then we haven't received the forgiveness of Christ. We're not participating in that forgiveness. And if, this is a, if, you, if, you're, if you're struggling with this, you doubt this, keep reading. Because it's evidence, what I'm saying here, in the next episode in this chapter. The story of Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector. And you've heard enough in church and in Bible studies about tax collectors, I'm sure. Lower than low. I mean, they're putting me. Anytime you see a sentence that says sinners and tax collectors, you know that's bad. Separate category. The point is, they were morally untouchable in the eyes of religious leaders. Morally untouchable for all the reasons that you know. Conspirators, cheats, on and on and on. 
But notice what happens here. It's so subtle, we miss it. Jesus doesn't just forgive Matthew, and he does forgive Matthew. That's implied by his call to follow him. He forgives Matthew by calling him to follow him. Doesn't ask for repentance. Doesn't ask all the other things, but says, follow me. But Jesus doesn't just forgive him. He takes it to the next level. If controversy was bad enough, with son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus doesn't just forgive Matthew. He recruits him. He recruits him. And this is hard for the Pharisees to reconcile. And this is why their prescription immediately, their understanding of Jesus is Jesus is a collaborator. Jesus is a traitor, just like this tax collector. He's a collaborator. And, beloved, this takes us to the other element that recognizing Jesus' authority to cross boundaries is going to challenge our own lines of separation. And I want to give you some sympathy for the Pharisees. They don't get a lot of it. Some sympathy, because they're having a hard time understanding what happens here with Matthew. Forgiving someone else's sins was a problem enough, but not only to forgive Matthew, but to recruit him. They're having a really hard time with this, because there seems to be a clear scriptural boundary here. Jesus seems to be crossing a very rigorous line of separation that's drawn in the Old Testament by what's known as the Holiness Code. And the holiness code has all of these things of stay away from these people, these people, these people. Don't associate with these people. Not, not, don't, not these people. And it's not just in this place called the holiness code in Exodus and Deuteronomy. But if you flip through the Old Testament, if you open up the Psalms, notice how often the psalmist will say, Lord, I am righteous because I stay away from wrongdoers. I have nothing to do with bad people. Give me props, Lord. I want nothing to do with those bad people. And so the Pharisees are saying, the company you keep is really hard to understand, Jesus. And Jesus, you, you, you love this, overhears them. And how does Jesus respond? He gives them a defining lens for interpreting Scripture. This is very helpful for us. The Pharisees are running Scriptures through their head that they've memorized since they were kids. This is wrong. This is wrong for so many reasons. Holiness Code, Psalms. Jesus should not be forgiving, let alone hanging out with a tax collector and then having dinner with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says, you want a Scripture? Here's a Scripture. Here's the Scripture by which you can understand what I'm doing. Go and think about this. Jesus gives them the Old Testament version of the Golden Rule. He quotes Hosea 6, Six, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God's words. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The key point of this, these words in Hosea that are repeated elsewhere, Isaiah to begin also, is that God is gracious before he is demanding. God is gracious before he is demanding. And the idea is, so should we. We should be gracious before we are demanding. The idea that the Pharisees are missing as they move from the man on the mat to Matthew is that forgiveness is the engine of our faith. Forgiveness is the engine of Christianity. Mercy mobilizes people. Freedom enables one to move. When you've been forgiven, you've been put into motion. And when you move, you move towards others. If we are set free in Christ, beloved... We have to follow Jesus wherever he goes. And wherever he goes may even be lines that we don't want to cross. To better understand this, notice the difference in this, in this encounter between Matthew and the religious leadership. Matthew embraces Jesus' forgiveness. Jesus says, follow me, and it's so simple and beautiful. Not a lot of language to it. Jesus says, Matthew, follow me, and Matthew, awesome, writes, 
I got up and I followed him. Not I said, can I close that business today? Not I got, I got up and I followed him. Matthew embraces Jesus' forgiveness, but he doesn't just follow him. What does he do next? What does that following look like? He mobilizes. He doesn't all of a sudden go, well, I'm with Jesus now, so I'm sorry, but I can't have anything to do with you people anymore. This was my old life. You know, you guys are scum, and I'm not scum anymore. Matthew goes and throws a party. Matthew goes. He doesn't separate himself. He invites all of his friends over to meet Jesus. And what you have here, if you don't catch it, is that as the Pharisees are looking at it, and that's what makes this so ironically sad, is this picture that we're supposed to see that Matthew wants us to see when everybody's at his house eating and Jesus is there and the disciples are there. You're getting a picture. This feast of sinners is a picture, a vision of the messianic banquet. This is a picture of the end. But the religious leaders are like, okay, now you've really gone overboard. They refuse to accept his authority. So in contrast to Matthew, who moves, goes and brings people together and says, let's eat. The Pharisees will not move. They refuse to accept his authority. They refuse to accept his forgiveness. So they don't move. And in their stagnation, don't miss this, they don't talk to Jesus. They talk through others. First sign of stagnation is passive aggressive, by the way. They basically say to the other disciples, um, this is not really healthy. This is not above board. And Jesus meets them directly. He crosses the line back over to them. They won't cross the line. But Jesus crosses the line that they stand on the other side of and invites them to participate. Whereas the Pharisees act like they don't need a doctor, Matthew admits he's sick. And not only that, he also admits he's got lots of friends who are also in need of medicine. And the irony in this passage is that the truly sick ones are the Pharisees. And their real illness, as Jesus prescribes it, is that they believe that they are well. Beloved, what, this, what we're to take away from this is that recognizing Jesus' authority to cross boundaries forces us to face our own need for forgiveness. If some of us right now are struggling with the idea that everybody is forgiven, and we should be struggling with it because we all have in our mind somebody at least one person who we're really not sure if they should be forgiven, if we're really honest. And then if we start quoting like, you know, people like Hitler and Stalin and other people, I'm sure we can go to town on people who shouldn't be forgiven. Said a prayer lately for, uh, <laughs> for Osama bin Laden. God rest his soul. Anyone said that recently? I don't think so. Recognizing Jesus' authority means it changes how forgiveness works and it means that we have to cross boundaries. And if we're not willing to do that, then recognizing Jesus' authority first and foremost makes us have to face our own need for forgiveness. What Jesus is saying here in quoting Hosea 6 is that the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God has been extended to all humanity in Christ. And that mercy, that forgiveness takes precedent over everything else. Everything must be interpreted in light of the mercy, grace, and forgiveness of God. What this means, beloved, is that the lines that we draw with Scripture are not necessarily the line that God has drawn. And if you want a striking example of this, skip ahead in Matthew. We talked about it on Wednesday night to the parable of the sheep and the goats, which is a parable of the very end when there's a line drawn and people think they're standing on the right side of the line. And Jesus says, I never knew you. 
That's your line. That's not my line. That's your line. That's not my line. Beloved, once we're in, it's so easy for us to, to, to reflect the Pharisees' mentality here. Once we're inside the church, we believe that we're well, don't we? And they're sick. Isn't that the Christian presumption? Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. I hate that bumper sticker. Hate it. Because it is a, there's a truth in it, but what lies behind it is, well, we're well, but you're sick. The reality is, the truth of the matter is, the gospel is that we're still sick. We're still sick, but in Christ we're getting healthier. Martin Luther once wrote, life is repentance. Not coming to Jesus is repentance, life is repentance. Martin Luther wrote these words because what he understood, what we need to understand, what this passage shows is that when we recognize Jesus' authority in our lives, our walls, our lines are constantly being reconstructed. Our unwillingness to accept and forgive others is the clearest indication, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we haven't accepted Jesus' diagnosis. That we are unwilling to accept ourselves, to accept the forgiveness that God is offering us in Jesus Christ. You've been sold, at some point or another, a bill of goods, and we've talked about this during our Lenten services, but it's worth repeating again. You've been sold, we've often sold in the church a bill of goods that says the gospel is about moral improvement. That God wants you to try really, really hard to be a better you. That's what you ought to do in, thanks, in being thankful for the fact that Jesus saved you. Boy, that sounds so close to the truth. And so many of us get very, very fixated on trying to be better because we're Christian. We're not perfect, but we're forgiven. And so therefore we should be closer to perfect than those who haven't been forgiven. Many of us really focus on our willpower and beat ourselves up or pride ourselves up on what we've done because of what a friend we have in Jesus. It becomes, the church mantra becomes all about self-discipline. But the reality is, Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is God doesn't want our moral improvement. God doesn't want our willpower and our self-discipline where we're trying to better ourselves. What God wants is our compassion. What God wants is our engagement with his grand work of redemption. What God wants is not for us to fall on our knees when we come in this door and say, Jesus, it's all about you. And then to stand up and say, well, now it's all about me. What God wants is us to say every day of our lives, it's all about you. I am a great sinner in need of an even greater Savior. Not just at one moment in our lives, but every moment of our lives. Beloved, God doesn't set us apart to become spiritual giants. And notice how often in the church we love to elevate spiritual giants. Or we love to be elevated ourselves as spiritual giants. And yet, giving authority for Jesus in our lives means that we are not giants. He is the only giant. God has liberated us so that we can be with the wrong people for the right reasons. God has liberated us so we can be with the wrong people for the right reasons. When's the last time you spent some time with the wrong people? And my gosh, how shocking would that be? What would people say? See how easy it is? We, God 
liberates us. Jesus liberates us so that we would spend time with the wrong people for the right reasons because once we were wrong people whom Jesus came in order to put right. Now, I'm recognizing that what I'm saying is an easier word for people who had a conversion experience later, than li- later in life. I would reckon to say that if you were someone who did not um, grow up knowing the Lord, this is an easier message for you to hear. I actually think this is a harder word for those of you who are cradle Christians. This is a harder word for you to hear if you're an institutionalized Christian. You've just always believed. You've always known. That's fantastic, but the downside of that is you've always been encouraged, probably, to play it safe. And you've always had it safe. Somewhere in your family history, if you grew up in a Christian home, somewhere if you always believed, somewhere in your story, it may not be in your lifetime, but somewhere in the lifetime of the family which you come from, Jesus crossed a boundary to come to you. So ask yourself, if you acknowledge that, that maybe you didn't have a conversion experience like Paul. Maybe if you just always knew, acknowledge that if some, at some point Jesus crossed a boundary to come into your life, the life of your family. Ask yourself, why do you keep drawing lines? We are forgiven in Christ so that we can break down boundaries. And sometimes, beloved, those boundaries are not just people. Sometimes those boundaries are the very traditions that brought us into this relationship with God. And that brings us to the last encounter here. Notice, if it wasn't controversial enough, that the controversy over Jesus' authority is not limited to the Pharisees. It's not only the religious leaders who are challenging how far Jesus is going. Even the disciples of John the Baptist have some reservations. The first issue was about whom Jesus was eating with. The second issue is about how often Jesus and his disciples are eating. Clearly, they were good Lutherans. They liked to eat. But John the Baptist's disciples have some questions. And to their credit, they put their questions directly to Jesus. They go straight to Jesus and say, Lord, help us understand something. We're fasting. And by the way, the Pharisees are fasting. But you and your disciples, you don't fast. You don't fast. You seem like you're feasting. In other words, read between the lines, you're not following tradition, Jesus. You're not very traditional, are you? Clearly your mama didn't teach you how to be a good Jew. And Jesus then goes on to, to use two different pictures to speak about this, a new reality. And this new reality is a new creation. And he talks about this idea that just as new wine ferments, and if you were to put it in the older skins, it would rupture those older skins to contain it, that it has to be contained in something new. Jesus is saying this new community, this new creation is breaking outside of the traditions. Recognizing Jesus' authority means recognizing his authority to change our traditions. And what that does is it often makes us realize when Jesus changes our traditions is how we are often missing the point. Beloved, the goal of the Christian life, and we all intellectually know this, the goal of following Jesus is not the perfection of ritual or the worshiping of our traditions. The, the, the purpose of the gospel, following Jesus, is about worshiping and rejoicing the community of the faithful gathered from all walks of life and all nations of the world around the risen and living Jesus Christ. But yet today, and we've talked about this in our community before, because they, they, we, it's so easy to go here, what traditions of the faith are so sacred to you that you cannot, they cannot change? And we make them sacred when we write up manuals and books. 
What traditions of the faith are so sacred to you that they cannot change? Because, beloved, whatever it is, and I'm not going to give examples that we've talked about before because there's way more than just those examples, but whatever it is, we must not confuse or elevate the vessels, the containers, the means of expressing our faith above the very revelation of God's presence and purpose in our lives. And I know that for many of you, you go, yeah, but that's how I meet Jesus. That's how I experience God. And I hear that. But you also have to be really careful in that because there's a place in which you can start worshiping the tradition instead of the person that it points to. The one who it's about. You can miss the bridegroom because of your fixation on the ceremony. Can I tell you, doing marital counseling, how many times I have to intervene in families that get so fixated on how the wedding's gotta be? It's gotta be like this at the expense of the bride and the bridegroom. Can I tell you times I have to say, time out? The most important thing happening on this day is them declaring their love before the world and before God. It's not the flowers. It's not whether or not them both mothers get to light the candles. Add on, add on, add on to your tradition. But it has to be this way. No, it doesn't. The most important thing is what they declare to each other before God. Jesus uses that analogy For our own lives, we can worship the traditions instead of the person that the traditions are pointing us to. And the beloved, the reality of the the church in the 21st century is that God is doing something new. And I know many of you can't stand it. Many of you, that's why for an hour and 15 minutes, I want everything to be the way that it was in this service. Everything else is changing and I want nothing to change in this service. Beloved, Everything else is changing the wrong way in the world. Everything in here needs to change in the right way because God is bringing people into our midst. And if we insist on holding on to the way things have always been and not allow God to do a new thing, we will die off. This is nothing new. You know this. If your parents were alive, they would tell you stories about the terrible changes you've made. Horrible changes. And yet here you are. And these, it's God, the most important thing that Jesus wants is mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus wants more people in the seats, not to increase the offering, because he wants more people to receive this forgiveness that he's offering, more people to experience this transformation. Beloved, The thing that we often miss in this passage, too, is that recognizing Jesus' authority to change our traditions will preserve and not ruin our past. It'll preserve our past and lead it into the future. Notice that Jesus in these analogies doesn't throw out the old wine. And the old wine is typically better, right? Jesus says the new wine has to be in new wineskins. And when you put the new wine in the new wineskins, rather than try to fix it in the old, it preserves both. Jesus announces elsewhere, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. The point of this is that yielding to the changes that are initiated by the Spirit will not forsake our past. We will not lose everything, which is our greatest fear. It might redefine our perspective on our past, and maybe that's what we're afraid of. But if we let the Spirit bring these changes, these new wineskins, it will actually allow us to hold on to the best of our past. Recognizing Jesus' authority 
provokes us to be willing to embrace new possibilities and practices in worshiping and following Jesus. It means that we're allowing Jesus to separate the wheat from the chaff because change is a part of giving Jesus authority over our lives because that's what Jesus is about, transformation. Really, we could jump to the end of this chapter, and if you, just, if you have your Bible open, jump to it, because the, what this is fundamentally about is not just forgiveness, not just boundaries, not just traditions. Fundamentally, how much authority? Recognizing Jesus' authority means recognizing his authority over our whole lives. At the very end of Matthew 9, you have this incredible picture. It, Matthew describes it, that he goes from towns to villages. Jesus is in the middle of increasing crowds, crowds with all kinds of needs. Matthew describes them as being harassed and helpless. And Matthew says, like a good shepherd... There are all these sheep and surrounded by these crowds, Jesus sees them. He feels their hunger, their pain, but he refuses to turn away. Instead, Matthew writes, like a shepherd, he's moved with compassion. And Jesus says aloud, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray for workers for the harvest. You know, in the church, I don't understand why this is. We've always heard Jesus' words here with a sense of urgency, which is spot on. But that urgency has always been expressed with some sense of desperation. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Get busy. Work, work, work. Improve yourself. Get better. My God, people's lives are on the line. And I hear this with urgency, but I don't hear it with desperation. I hear it with expectation. What Jesus is saying here is not that we don't have enough workers. What Jesus is saying is look at the opportunity before us. You look around and you see empty seats and you say, the church I knew is dying. Grace is not the church that it used to be. Oh, the days when we had three services. Oh, the days when we were filling it up. But those days are gone. My God, Pastor Chris, do something. Do something to fill our church again so we can be alive. And I say to you, I look around and see the empty seats and I don't see desperation. I see opportunity. I see that there are plenty of people who are out there. The harvest is plentiful who are searching, who are asking, who are dying to know, who are waiting to be invited and encountered. The choice is whether or not we are going to take advantage of that opportunity. Look at the start of chapter 10, right after Jesus says it, so you know this isn't desperation. Jesus says out loud, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray for workers for the harvest. And you imagine the disciples praying, and then right into chapter 10, Jesus goes, glad you prayed, now go. He sends out the 12. The harvest is plentiful. Oh, by the way, in case you missed it, you're my guys. Go. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus sends the rest of us. Last words of Matthew's gospel, great commission. 12, go and make disciples teaching them everything I've commanded you and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Beloved, we're confronted with the profound realization that Jesus not only exercises authority over our lives, but Jesus, in exercising that authority, shares his authority with us. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are commissioned. It's God's field. It's God's heart. It's God's compassion that sends us out into the harvest. God desires to change lives. God wants to change this city. God purposes to change the world. And in taking authority over our lives, he sends us out. He sends us out as the harvesters, as the workers. All of us. Not just the pastors. Not just the missionaries. He sends all of us out. 
He sends out the carpenters, the clerks, the landscapers, the mechanics, the lawyers, the police officers, the teachers. He sends out people that are willing to hold infants, people that will counsel expectant mothers, people that are willing to gather and distribute food and clothing to the homeless, people that are willing to walk into schools and paint or clean up or mentor someone else. I could go on and on. The harvest and the workers are right in front of us. It's us. Jesus calls us as workers for God's harvest. He calls us to declare and demonstrate the kingdom. The traditions that sometimes we get so fixated on where we're missing the point is the real vessels that God wants us to be aware of are us. Jesus seeks to use us as vessels to accomplish something, and that's something that he assures us through the cross is going to happen, the redemption and reconciliation of the universe. Jesus exercises authority in our lives, beloved, so that we would become his face, so that we would become the body of Christ reflecting his love and compassion to the world around us. What an incredible calling. What a privilege. We should get on our knees in wonder and awe at the realization, in fact, that Jesus doesn't just exercise authority in our lives, but in exercising authority, shares his authority with us. We're halfway through Lent. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, it is, we've been here before and we'll be here again. It starts all over again tomorrow. It's all well and good to say, to sing or to pray that we trust Jesus. That our faith is in him and in him alone. But when push comes to shove, are we willing to recognize Jesus' prerogative to shake up our expectations, our sensibilities, our boundaries, and our traditions. If saving us means changing us, changing everything, are we still interested in being saved? If Jesus as Lord signifies that there is nothing in our lives, nothing in our world that Jesus cannot claim as his, to do with as he pleases, are we still going to get on our knees or have we already started looking for a new master? Jesus is more than a friend, more than a friend who loves and comforts us. Jesus is someone who redeems, heals, and empowers us. Jesus is more than a brother that we can look up to and follow. Jesus, belonging to him, is recognizing that he is Lord and Savior. It means recognizing his authority in our life and world. Jesus doesn't need us to give him authority or to recognize his authority. He already has all the authority he needs. Recognizing his authority is for our benefit. Acknowledging Jesus' control and influence over our lives builds our character and refines our spirit. The gospel is not about moral improvement by our effort. The gospel is about continuing to admit that we are sick and that we need Jesus to heal us and we are morally improved by the work of the spirit in us. By grace alone, it begins, by grace alone it ends. Jesus doesn't grab power or control from us. He already has all there is. Jesus is totally free to love, to forgive, and to reign, whether we say amen or not. What we're confronted with is this amazing truth that even if we resist Jesus' authority, he continues to love us and forgive us anyway, nudging us toward eternal life and salvation despite ourselves. 
So beloved, as we finish this morning, the question once again is this. Are we going to stand back in our day-to-day lives? Are we going to stand back and put a limit on the authority that Jesus has? Are we going to stand back and join in the complaints of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the disciples of John the Baptist? Or are we going to join the party that is the kingdom of God? The reconciliation of the people of the world to God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Son, Jesus Christ, how much authority will you give Jesus over your life? The choice is yours. Amen? Amen.